This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With the careful gaze of the Gregory, we discuss the gold sun. And then, with a distant light pierces the mist, we consider how the cabinet of Dr. Caligari can serve as an inspiration for an Invisible Sun game. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss an aspect of the Invisible Sun RPG in detail. We're still on the Path of Suns this time, and we're going to be talking about the Eighth Sun, another Sun of Change. Scott, can you believe it's been two weeks since we talked about a sun? Usually we have like a four-week break. Time works weird here in the more remote parts of the actuality. Yeah, it's all timey-wimey, I suppose. So the gold sun, this is the last sun before we step off to the invisible sun itself, also known as Solaire. Um, so this is the last uh, this is the last sun on the normal path of suns. Uh, we will be making a return trip on the night side path. But hey, we're going to wrap things up here with the gold sun. So like I said in the little intro here, this is another sun of change. The The previous sun that we talked about, the red sun, was a sun of change. And that sun was focused on destruction and annihilation. So just, just destroying things. That like That's the change it was focused on. This sun is more about redemption and mercy and forgiveness. This is, this is what you go through when you change and heal and... Well, get better. It's it's about rehabilitation, improvement, and second chances. Uh, so when I was reading through this one, it reminded me of uh, the Houses of Healing from Lord of the Rings. Um, so it's it's a nice place that your players could go to in order to recover from something traumatic and awful that they had just been through. So if you're looking for like a bottle episode, hey, why not send them over to... Uh, the gold sun and let them just you know lick their wounds and get better and hang out with the elderbrin for a while so we had demons in the red sun but over here we have the elderbrin have we talked about them yet not in much detail um, so, so this this might be the most convenient point to talk about what little we know about the elderbrin yeah at some point we might have segments about demons and and elderbrin but I think talking about the Elderbrin here would be a good point for it. Um, so the description of the Elderbrin under the Gold Sun is that these are hyper-magical people. So they're... I'm, I'm not sure how you would describe a Vizlay. Uh, I was under the impression that Elderbrin would be playable characters. So I'm not sure if they are Vizlay themselves or, or if they're just different sorts of creatures than the Vizlay are. I don't recall any announcement either way. Yeah. But either way, they're going to be hyper-magical. My, my impression of them when I was reading through the Kickstarter stuff is that 
they were fey creatures, so they would be Invisible Sun's surreal version of elves. So if you had taken high elves or, you know, Tolkien's elves and, you know, focused on one aspect of them, which is their, you know, innate magical sort of, it's not ability, but their presence and amplified that, hey, you get the, you get these Elderbrin. Um, though they are shapeshifters uh, to some degree. I believe they can change their shapes to whatever they want. But they live in nomadic villages that are built upon intelligent rivers, or they live in castles that are made of uh, discarded moth chrysalises. And I have a feeling that they are just going to live in or near or by strange and unusual things. Uh, so it seems like Hey, do you like surrealism? Well, why don't you why don't you do something with the Elderbrin and just make it super surreal or hyper surreal to fit in with the Elderbrin, I suppose. To make the surreal normal for you. Yeah. You're kind of made of surreal. Yeah. These are the uh, physical embodiment of surrealism. Uh, so an interesting thing about the the Gold Sun is that there are dichotomies in the transitions. So the, this is an interesting way to, I guess it's not really a way to represent surrealism in your game. It's just an interesting feature of the gold sun that there should be um, pretty big juxtapositions in the transitions that happen on this plane of existence. Uh, the example that they have there is that, Hey, the nights here are cold, but the days are nice and warm. It's very pleasant. Uh, so I was trying to think of some other examples of, you know, where this might show up. And I thought the, you know, most obvious one would have been, hey, you have people who come here and they are broken and injured. And then they get better and they leave and they're healthy and they're hale and hearty. Uh, which, you know, that slots right in with what the gold sun is all about. One way I was thinking about it was... With the red sun, the emphasis was was on the, the destruction, and I I think mm -hmm. I used the phrase kind of the first phase of change is destruction, and the second phase is rebirth. Well, yeah. this is focusing on the second phase, the rebirth part, and so the dichotomies allow you to compare the before and after of change. Whereas with the red sun, there wasn't much of a comparison because you didn't get to the, the second stage; you just broke stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, here it is. It's a comparison of how something, something at an early stage transforms into something different. So you talk about you know uh, night into day, uh, uh, injured into healed. Uh, we could also think of things uh, like other kind of big magical transitions in mythology. It might be something like uh, a flood, uh, and then the uh, fertile uh, valleys that are. Uh, fertilized by the, the flooding waters where it's, you know, in some ways the flood is bad. Um, it is, it has negative consequences. It's something we wouldn't necessarily want. And it is in some ways destructive. Uh, however, that destruction brings with it new rebirth. So it fertilizes the plants and allows the communities to grow on the riverbeds. Yeah. Same could be said about uh, forest fires. Mm -hmm. I, and so here you have some examples where it seems to embody both the red sun and the gold sun itself. Mm -hmm. But on the if you were on the red sun, you would only get the first part of it. But here on the gold sun, you're going to get both of it. You know, both 
multiple pieces to that. Right. So a red sun representation of a forest fire might be a forest that is constantly on fire Hmm. um, or one that is burned down and never regrows. Whereas in the golden sun, there's a dichotomy of a cycle of, of burning and regrowth. Right. And I suppose not all dichotomies would be, oh, something terrible turns into something good. Uh, so there, there would be some other things that you might want to try and find and work with in order to, you know, not just pigeonhole yourself into, hey, you come here when you're broken and then you get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there might be, a, there, there, you know, not all dichotomies are positive versus negative. It could be other things, uh, though those those tend to dominate our minds. Uh, there, there are some They're easy. philosophers that say that it's pretty much built into, into dichotomous thinking is a positive negative valence, but we can try and break out of that. Yeah, uh, that would that would be a hard one, and uh, I know I'm not going to come up with something off the top of my head. <laughs> Let's uh, we we can try by going off the positive negative scale to another scale, uh, and then say that really a dichotomy might be a balance between two opposites. Um, maybe it is um, ocean and land. I don't know how much transition there is between those two states over time, but that's an example of a dichotomy. And the point of of the gold sun would be the transition between the two, like the beach. Mm-hmm. That's just me taking a dare. So you could have a, a prominent beach uh, where you would want to set this? That could be one part of the golden sun. And it, plus, it's a great place to put a healing uh, salon. Yeah. Right on the transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a guardian here in the gold sun. This guardian's name is Shima. Uh, Shima is powerful, wise, beautiful, and full of grandeur. And she's going to be difficult to impress, but she's probably not going to take notice of you. And that's really all we've got about this guardian. You know, an aloof guardian who stands at the gates to the gold sun. So one of the things I was thinking about with the gold sun was how you might want to use it in uh, an invisible sun campaign. So it's the, the thing that stuck out to me was that this really read like the nicest place that we have encountered yet. The green sun, you know, that was all right. You know, it was uh, lush and fertile, uh, but very dangerous and full of, you know, you know, dan- uh, well, dangers is something I already said. Full of things in the wilderness that you don't want to run across. Um, indigo is where everybody lives, but, you know, it's been blasted by the war. And it feels like a very depressing place right now. Uh, and then, hey, you've got, you know, the sun of spirits. You've got the pale sun. You've got demons hanging out under the red sun. Uh, so here you go. You have the gold sun where things seem to be very pleasant and nice. And that might be a nice little respite for your characters, uh, for your players. But I was wondering if perhaps the war on Indigo might have had an effect on the Gold Sun itself. And it led me to wondering, uh, does one sun have a direct impact on another sun? And I don't think that's a a question we can answer at this point. I'm guessing the answer is going to be yes. But hey, who knows? But a much more immediate impact that I think you could easily, you know, bring in here is that uh, you would have an influx of people who are fleeing from 
the war in Indigo. And one of the good places that they may want to go is the Gold Sun. I mean, if, if you've suffered greatly in that war, going to the Gold Sun might be one of the uh, things that you would really want to do. So you might have an influx of refugees that are you know, making their way towards the Gold Sun. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and then you get to play with the, the tensions between the kind of uh, uh, the perfection of the rebirth and forgiveness of the uh, golden sun uh, and kind of and its capacity and whether the you know, influx changes the character of the gold sun. And that could be an, an interesting context in which to play the dichotomy of, uh, you know, rebirth but also this you know the reaction to destruction um, especially if if this is if kind of the the ethos of the gold sun is destruction just leads to rebirth uh then mm-hmm. you know refugees on your doorstep like we are physically personifying destruction um and we are not enjoying it and we think you know you're trivial trivializing it to say it's all part of the natural plan um and so you know you should you should help us yeah, it might be a little bit too topical. It might be, though. Uh, in my uh, playtest group, uh, refugees are actually a big part of, of the story. Uh, though I'm I'm having I'm using refugees uh, in the Indigo Sun. Mm-hmm. Refugees of the war are a big part of the story we're working on. But it could play well here, I think, in the Gold Sun. I think that is going to wrap us up for the Gold Sun. Well, I do have another suggestion of just a quick another story one could use the Gold Sun for. Uh, I think makers may be particularly interested in the gold sun if they need to transform, improve, or purify the components they're using to make whatever it is that they are making. Uh, I could see having this be a destination not only of healing, but also of purification. So the components, Mm -hmm. maybe something you have to bring here, maybe you have seeds you have to bring here to grow specifically in the gold sun to produce the, the plants that you need for your potion. Or uh, you have a uh, a particular uh, tree that can only be carved, or the wood can only be carved under the gold sun if it is to retain its strength and uh, uh, perfect integrity. So you could use this, uh, the sun and its aspect of purity uh, and renewal as part of the making process for makers. Yeah, that's a good one. So there's a lot of story uses uh, for this for the sun. I think there's opportunity here. We don't have a lot of detail, but focusing on the themes lets us see where the sun can be brought in uh, to a variety of games. And next time when we talk about the Path of Suns, we'll be talking about Solaire. Uh, and that'll be a, a nice moment for reflection. In a distant light pierces the mist, we discuss various inspirations for our Invisible Sun games. In this segment, we discuss the movie The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is one of my favorites. Um, it is, by some uh, accounts, the very first horror movie. There had been clips of film that uh, had horrific uh, images. I, you know, There's an early, early, early... Uh, short clip of 
inspired by Frankenstein, for instance, but for something that looks like a movie that we'd recognize as an entire narrative arc as a movie, this is generally considered the first horror movie. It's a uh, variously dated either 1919 or 1920 German movie by director Robert Weiner. I'll give you a quick synopsis of the movie, uh, and then we'll talk about how it can maybe inspire uh, how to tell stories in uh, for an Invisible Sun game. I think it's important to note that we're going to spoil this nearly 100-year-old movie. Yeah, I hadn't. It's really close to the hundredth anniversary. I need to figure out something special to do for the for this movie on its hundredth anniversary in a couple of years or three years. Yeah. Um, and I think the spoiler warning is warranted because I don't think most people have seen this. Uh, that's true. Um, though I will also tell people, since it is so, in part because it's so old, uh, it is in the public domain. So you can, without any sense of guilt, look this up on YouTube uh, and see the whole thing there. Uh, also, we will spoil the plot and some of the elements of the movie, though this movie is very much an experience. And so knowing the plot is not necessarily going to weaken the experience you have in watching the movie, I expect. It is not a movie whose value is predicated on not knowing the twist at the end of Act 3 or whatever. <laughs> it is... Act 6. Uh, yeah, or, yeah, whatever. Twists at various acts. Uh, it's a very simple plot, uh, but it is, and it's really more about the visual representation of the story than it is the plot itself. But it is worth going through the plot just so we can you can have some context for when we talk about how the story is expressed. So again, the story is relatively simple. Uh, it starts with a man named Francis sitting on a bench, explaining to another man that he has been driven from his home with his fiance. That uh, he and his fiance Jane. Uh, uh, he, he begins to tell the story of how he and his fiancée, Jane, go to see a show at a touring carnival by a Dr. Caligari. Dr. Caligari has a somnambulist, kind of like a, almost like a zombie, uh, but more in the kind of mesmerized sense of zombie, someone who's asleep, but moving and talking. In fact, this somnambulist sleeps in a coffin, but when awoken, can speak in prophecies. So you have this character who's during the day allegedly sleeps in a coffin and for the show for the carnival, the the crowd will ask the this sleeping figure questions and he will murmur the answer to these questions and they will be like prophecies. Francis's friend Alan asks the somnambulist how long he will live, to which the somnambulist replies, until dawn. Probably not coincidentally, Alan is then stabbed to death that night. Francis and his fiancée, uh, Jane, uh, investigate the somnambulist. They're suspicious that this somnambulist is a carnival act, and there may be more here than meets the eye. It may not be just prophecy. It may be something, uh, you know, questionable like murder. Uh, and so they, they go to investigate the somnambulist, uh, whom I will now call uh, uh, Cesare, because that's its actual name, his actual name, and uh, that's an easier word to say than somnambulist, by not, but not by a lot. Uh, when, at, while they're investigating, Cesare kidnaps Jane and flees, eventually leaving her behind and dying. Uh, Dr. Caligari, in this uh, melee, escapes, but Francis follows him to an asylum. Francis learns uh, at the asylum that Caligari is actually the director of this uh, asylum. 
that Dr. Caligari became obsessed with the writings of an 18th century mystic named Caligari, and in what is a particularly cool sequence, becomes mad and decides, I must become Caligari. Francis calls the police in who abduct Caligari for the murder, uh, and then Caligari becomes an inmate in his own asylum. Except, and here is kind of the twisty part. As Francis concludes the story he's telling to the man on the bench, it becomes clear that it is Francis who is in the asylum. Caligari is actually the asylum director. Uh, and uh, so the whole story is sort of an unreliable narrator uh, and or, from an unreliable narrator and may represent the ravings of a mad asylum inmate. And you know, Jane is just this woman who's in the background of the asylum and that his hatred for Caligari is just the hatred for the director of the asylum in which he is being held. So there's, there's that twist at the end, there's this framing device. We'll get back to the framing device uh, in just a little bit, but I want to put this in the context uh, in how the film is typically interpreted. So some things that are important to understand about this movie is it was made after World War I, before World War II in Germany, uh, at the height of what would become uh, the expressionist period uh, filmmaking in, in German film. And some would say, in addition to being the first horror film, that The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is the most uh, perfect expression of expressionist filmmaking, that it is the ultimate expressionist film. And some of this is because of artistic vision, of course, but some of it is also because of the resource constraints they were operating under when they made the film. So it's after World War I, the peace accords in World War One were not particularly kind to Germany. Uh, they, you know, by you know, as as people would take advantage of later, they would say that the German people were being punished basically for World War One, and the results were resource scarcity. So the film industry did not have a lot of money uh, to spend on films. One thing in particular they were lacking were was effective lighting. So instead of lighting in individual scenes, what the uh, production designers did was they painted shadows onto the sets themselves because they couldn't use lighting to reliably shape the shadows for the shots. Hmm. This leads to an unsettling character for everything in the film. <laughs> it's not just the sets that have that shadowing then, it's the makeup as well. Yeah, and this is in this is a silent film, uh, and an early silent film at that. And so you also have a tradition of rather extreme is it churrascaria makeup as well as lighting. So you have uh, very dark, dark makeup immediately uh, next to very bright makeup, and so characters are in stark contrast for the for the cameras of the day, which was part necessity of the technology, but also part of the vision of these uh, of the filmmakers. There is a famous uh, discussion of the context of this film by a film historian named Krakauer. Uh, there will be a link in the show notes. Uh, he has a book called From Caligari to Hitler, which argues that the development of, the, of German society from the end of World War I through the beginning of World War II can be described usefully through just looking at the evolution of film in this period and that the themes in Caligari represent kind of the, the psyche of the German people uh, in this transitional period. And it, it's, it's, it's a very interesting book, though it's, it's much disputed uh, at this point. 
And this was filmed basically at like right at the end of World War One, wasn't it? Uh, it would have been filmed just a couple years after. Couple yeah. years, okay. Nineteen. Yeah. I I don't know exactly when it wrapped up. I thought it was like nineteen seventeen, nineteen eighteen. Yes. So this I don't and and the production cycle was pretty quick. So I I believe this was shooting in eighteen and maybe even nineteen. Okay. And I'm betting the Krakauer book has exactly that information, uh, but I don't have it with me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, there's also uh, an interesting story from Krakauer that is the subject of some controversy now. Um, about that framing device, that twist at the end. So Krakauer proposed that an early version of the movie did not have the framing device, that the movie was pretty much a straight story about a couple and their friend that goes to the carnival. They meet a somnambulist. He kills somebody. They chase him down. And it turns out that somnambulists have been controlled by an evil um, uh, uh, asylum director. And that this... Krakauer argued was rejected by films by German film censors as being too revolutionary because it suggested that the German people were the somnambulist that their leaders were the asylum directors and thus it it fomented resistance to authority uh, and that it hmm. it uh, was you know uh, painted authority in a negative light because surely the leaders of the German people would not, uh, use their people as weapons in some sort of crusade in the very near future. That's an interesting take. Yeah, that's the kind of the Krakauer uh, story of this framing device that has been disputed in, in several respects. Uh, there has been, as recently as the 90s, a script has come forward um, that suggests there was a framing device there in an early draft, though the framing device was different and kind of had a different interpretation to it. So it didn't have quite the same meaning reversal. Because with the framing device, the argument is, oh, well, yeah, there's an anti-authoritarian message because the storyteller is insane. Um, so you kind of get away with it. But this other st framing device didn't have quite the same punch to it. So it might still have been a more or less revolutionary movie. There, um, so there's some dispute over whether the framing device uh, censorship story actually happened or not. There's a debate over who is responsible for the framing sequence. Uh, the German director Fritz Lang has claimed at times that he either wrote or suggested someone write the framing sequence, uh, whether in response to censor censorship or not. Others said he had nothing to do with it. Um, th and, you know, I don't know how we're going to figure out what this he said, she said dispute is from the 19-teens in Germany. Uh, but that is a famous historical kind of film debate. Uh, so there's all sorts of debate in the Krakauer book about the history of the making of the film. But what's most important is the sort of the context of it and how it represents a school of, of film and how we can borrow the techniques of the school of film for Invisible Sun storytelling. Like I said, it is associated with expressionism. This is a, uh, a movement that is happening kind of not quite in parallel uh, to surrealism, but it's also not the same thing as surrealism, but they're related in important ways. Uh, expressionism in film that is a technique in which the the environment of the film represents and makes physical the emotional state of the characters in the film. It is often associated then with exaggerated architecture and exaggerated, sometimes even cartoonish 
representations of reality because a, a building, you know, if a, a, a character is sad in an expressionist film, the building needs to look sad. Hmm. So it's, it is anti-realist in this respect. It's not about representing reality. It's about using these physical buildings and you know, the other parts of, of, of the uh, scene to reflect the emotional state of the characters. So the emotional state takes priority over things like physics and realism and the, and the, the, the like. So in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the city is represented with very kind of twisted shadows. Nothing is on. There's no kind of level doorway or passageway or road or bridge in the entire city. Everything's at weird angles. It's not quite Escher, but it has this sort of everything being at an angle disorientation that is supposed to represent the disorientation of the characters in the story itself. And I think that is an easy technique to borrow for Invisible Sun games, that if you're tr- that you might want to have a theme for a story and make sure that theme is represented in the physical space of the story you're telling. Whether it's the colors you use, this is black and white with very distinct shadows, the angles that you describe in those shadows, the angles within in the, the doors and windows, the off-centered uh, nature of the buildings, the absence of straight lines, that's all representing a certain theme. Uh, but you can borrow this technique to, again, have a scene that if you want the scene to be sad, find a way to describe the building so the building seems sad. It's raining. It is. Uh, it, it has a, a, a blue hue to it. Uh, it seems to be leaning, almost groaning under the weight of its own uh, history and the weather that's pounding down on it. You 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 represent emotion through these physical, uh, environmental uh, elements. Uh, another uh, kind of I, I don't you know part uh, consequence of the environment which the movie is made, but also a contribution to the f- sense of emotion in the film is. I don't know, it's something I, I noticed mostly in this most recent viewing. The entire set seems like it's about to fall over. Yeah, uh, every single scene, every single set uh, is canted to some degree. Right. Nearly well, it's not scene. just that it's off balance, but like the doors look like they're only, you know, a quarter of an inch thick. Everything is frail. Mm-hmm. And as they open doors or they, they, they interact with the environment, everything looks like it's about to fall over. It's about to break. It just seems that there's a frailty of the entire infrastructure. Like there is no permanence in the city of Holston wall where this uh, story takes place. And I think that represents for the characters, a sense of a lack of permanence uh, that they can't rely upon the buildings and the city and the environment to be a foundation on which their lives are built. It, it is falling over. And it is vulnerable. And and that creates an emotional resonance, again, in the architecture itself for the theme of the movie. There was one scene in this movie that I thought sort of stood in contrast to that. Mm-hmm. And it's in the, in the asylum, in the uh, main room of the asylum. It is the most normal-looking set in this whole movie. It has three entryways with stairs leading out of them. Uh, it does have a strange pattern on the floor that does stick out a little bit, but it's got normal furniture. Like everything there seems very, you know, normal in comparison to the rest of the film. And I think that that dichotomy is interesting. Right. And it is somewhat uh, funny that the most normal scene and, and the most normal setting for the movie is the asylum. 
<laughs> and so well, it's playing. It's, the, the thing about that, that room is that um, the, the twist at the end, the framing device where you find out that Francis is one of the inmates of the asylum, mm-hmm. that's, that, um, that set is in both versions of the story. The mm-hmm. story that he's telling and then the story that he actually is in. Right. And in fact, his, like the scenes that are, that are him telling the story, not the, not the scenes of the story itself, are all set more or less in that scene mm-hmm. or in that setting. And so that's one of the arguments for the interpretation that everything in the middle is unreliable. It is the uh, product of a diseased mind that has this uh, canted, angled city where nothing is straight, nothing makes sense, everything is exaggerated, no one's behaving in a human manner. Um, well, that's just because it's an insane person telling you the story. But when you're outside of that in, into the framing context, you're in an ordered environment of the asylum itself. Though there is the, these hints still of elements of those that the shadowing, elements of disorder, but they're tamed within the asylum itself. So it either can feed the distinction between the framing device and thus the central story as being evidence of mental illness. Or it can be the hint that, oh, well, even this ordered, the seemingly ordered world is merely concealing some of the undercurrents of madness. Mm-hmm. Before I forget, it's, I, I should also put link uh, in the show just this last year to, to suggest this continuing influence. Uh, there was an edited volume of short stories, all inspired by the Count of Dr. Caligari. Uh, so I will put a uh, link to the show notes. I've read this. Uh, it's it's a very good edited volume of horror short stories. Uh, and they play with various themes from the movie, including this notion of, of, of unreliable narrator, as you can imagine, um, the kind of Holson Wall as a setting, and some of the uh, uh, disorienting architecture. Uh, they also play with the theme of the unreliability of identity and the control of self which is something that is a, you know, a big part of this movie. You've got uh, Cesare, who's the somnambulist. He is controlled by Dr. Caligari. You have Dr. Caligari, who loses his identity uh, by becoming obsessed with the 18th century Caligari. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is as he is sort of becoming obsessed. Uh, they, again, express his mental state through the environment uh, of the film. So as he's having this mental uh, uh, kind of breakdown, the name Caligari is appearing all along the buildings and the roads and the sky and the walkways all around him. And so again, the, the, the environment itself reflects the madness that he is embracing uh, when he embraces this, this new identity. But this theme of unreliable narration and the fragility of identity is, is an interesting one to play with in any high magic setting. Um, if identity is something that can be traded, if it can be suppressed, if it can be held held captive, if we have spells like an you know mind trap or things like that, well what what does the body mean? And what does the, the what does identity mean? And how can we trust, how does that affect inter- interpersonal relationships if identity is so fluid? Kind of a big topic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think related to that would be, um, you know, we have been living in shadow for so long. How can we really trust that uh, indigo is the real world? Absolutely. 
And so we we're kind of living a framing device as our characters in Invisible Sun. So we just woke up and we think we just had a dream, or we just th- we think we had an experience that was the ravings of not you know someone who was insane, but someone who was trapped within uh, the gray sun. Um, but how do we know that we are not just trapped in the indigo and there is in some sense some you know ultraviolet sun that is the really real world uh, and that we are in the middle of the story, we have not actually found the framing device. Interesting thought. And we also have in Caligari, again, this setting, the story is not set, but the movie was filmed in a post-war uh, climate. And so post, post, a lot of the themes reflect post-war uncertainties about the destructive potential of humans. And so one common interpretation of Cesare, the somnambulist, is this is the easily swayed public that can be manipulated through, in this case, mesmerism, but maybe through magic or through other means, to to be destructive. That the, in some sense, wise, prophetic somnambulist is still manipulated by an authority figure to murder. And that this is a representation of the anxieties of a post-war period where a pacifist might say, you know, why have we done this? Why did we go to war? How was a, a group of people that, you know, I was interacting with all of the time, I know these people would, you know, be sad if they, um, you know, uh, hurt anybody else. They would do whatever they could to avoid hurting other people. And yet that person marched to war. Uh, and so what? by what process did a generally peaceful people transform into a warlike people. And that sort of anxiety uh, motivates many interpretations of the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and the fear that that's part of human nature and part of our society, that many, many people, maybe, you know, I would say many of us, I would include myself in this number, are somnambulists. We are potentially subject to manipulation that can transform us from wise, prophetic, Uh, and peaceful people into agents of destruction by the nefarious use of authority, like uh, Dr. Caligari. And I think that's that's something that can be play into a post-war story in Invisible Sun. If we're recovering from the war, these same anxieties may be present, and this story may serve as inspiration for how to bring those anxieties into a story with mesmerism and magic and expressionism and surrealism. Yeah, it's... um... Once again, feeling like something that could be pretty topical. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite moments in a Gen Con seminar, I don't remember, this was several years ago now, I went to a Delta Green seminar, and a person in the audience asked the panel, you write these scenarios and these stories about horrible monsters and you know uh, Lovecraft mythos stuff, and the you basically write this really scary stuff. What scares you? And uh, I forgot who said it. I think it was Scott Glancy, but I'm not positive. First replied, do you read the news? And then I think it might have been Dennis Detweiler, who's now at Monty Cook Games. But again, Mm -hmm. I'm not positive because it's been several years. But I I think he may have been, he followed it up with saying, what scares me the most or my great fear is that we're all being trained to do something terrible. Yeah, that's a real bummer. <laughs> it took the air right out of the room because it, it hit really close to home. Um, but it's also a fascinating idea to think about as we write stories. And maybe one could say, 
the only, well, a, a morally responsible thing to consider as we write stories. If we think about the effects that our stories have on people and the themes we need to explore, then maybe we need to explore the extent to which we are being trained. Are we Cesare? Are we being trained to do something terrible? How do we resist that? And through our games, maybe we can explore how we deal with uh, the world we live in and uh, how we interact with authority uh, and the limits both of the moral capacity of authority and the uh, uh, limitations on individuals' uh, moral responsibility to resist that, that authority. And yeah, so maybe it's a lot easier to deal with this stuff and to, to explore these themes in games. Uh, because talking about them based on you know the news uh, is just way too close to home, uh, way too personal, and way too direct. But we can play with big themes in games. And just like in Caligari, they played with big themes through a fantastic story about a, uh, a circus-performing somnambulist that, that foretells the future and a nefarious 18th century mystic personality taking over uh, the director of an, of, uh, an insane asylum it was this fantastic story that allowed the directors to address important themes in early 20th century German society about authority, submission, madness, identity, and big issues. And though we went through the whole thing, it's still definitely worth a watch. <laughs> right. Um, it is. We, we could not represent the visual beauty of this movie through our... Uh, description or our vocal description of it. Uh, it's a you know they they say that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> well, very much talking about Caligari is a different experience than watching Caligari. So I hope if anything, this serves as uh, an advertisement for you to Google or uh, Caligari or go through our show notes to the link for the YouTube of the Cabinet of Caligari. It's a short movie. It's like seventy something minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, well worth the time as an experience of the history of film, an experience in the history of horror, techniques for expressionist storytelling that lead into surrealist storytelling, uh, and how to grapple with big themes of identity, recovery, uh, responsibility, authority through a fantasy story. Uh, and I think it's a, a model in some ways for what we can do with our games. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Dr. Scott Robinson on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. So leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. We hear it helps people find the show. Uh, or tell a friend about the show, and that would be another great way to help us out. Thanks.